Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy, the podcast where we talk about what's important to you, the Border Patrol agents, men and women out in the field, your families, and those that we serve. Here today with us, we have Chief Rich Fortunato. Now, Chief Fortunato is actually the Deputy Director Directorate Chief of the Mission Readiness Operations Directorate. Rich, good to have you. Thank you, Chief. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. Now, this is a kind of an interesting topic that I want to talk about because many people, when they think of the United States Border Patrol, they think of the men and women in uniform out there on the line, on patrol, on the front line of, uh, of law enforcement and keeping this country safe, as they should. Not a lot of thought, or at least not enough thought, goes into the men and women behind the scenes that support that mission and keep it where we're able to do what we do every day out in the field. And that's where you come in. Yeah, that's a, that's where I come in. It's a, it's actually a pretty big machine that helps drive that nineteen thousand five hundred and fifty five agents out there doing the stuff that they do. Uh, a lot of work goes into got to make sure they have the vehicles and the facilities and all the equipment that goes out there. So that's what our directorate takes care of is all of the manpower and administrative functions to make sure our agents and employees can get the job done. So and what's the old saying? Uh, amateurs think tactics, experts think logistics. So we wouldn't be able to go out there and do the job that we do every single day. We wouldn't have vehicles to drive. We wouldn't have gas to put in those vehicles. We wouldn't have the equipment that we need, the technology that we need. We wouldn't be able to procure the infrastructure that we need on the border. All these force multipliers that, uh, that make our job easier and safer. We wouldn't be able to get the contracts that we need to get the support from folks, from vendors, all of that falls under the purview of mission readiness operations and the professional staff, the non-uniform men and women that do this job each and every day. Tell us a little bit about what does it take to be a member of that part of our family? Well, it, it even goes a little bit different than that. One thing you didn't mention, which is the big important part, is uniforms. Hmm. It's another thing that falls in that that's a contract that goes through with CBP and we work. So that there's that whole group of thing. Mission support uh, operations director headquarters is based out of, is, is basically seven divisions. Um, and those seven divisions are split into two sides of the portfolio. We have an executive director uh, right now at the acting executive director is Lisa Geddes. And then that we have two portfolios of a, a portfolio that I'm over as the deputy chief, which is the um, agent support division, the recruitment and training division, the logistics division and the facilities division, and then uh, acting director Michael Rose. I'm sorry, acting executive director, our deputy ex executive director is Michael Rosemont, and he has the workforce management, the programming, which is the wrap cycle, the five year out budget stuff, and then the finance stuff, the folks that take care of all of our money stuff that comes through. So it's a it's a team of about a uh, 190 people at headquarters that are doing all those functions that take care of the things that the, the field needs. And then from there, you go down to the sector level. Again, for those of you that don't know, the Border Patrol divides the country up into sectors. And so you have 20 geographic areas, sectors, plus you have the Special Operations Group, and you also have the U.S. Border Patrol Academy plus the headquarters element. But those those really 21 sectors, if you if you include SOG, also have their version of mission readiness operations divisions that are a tier below the headquarters element but do much the same thing. Yeah, they, they actually handle a lot of that stuff. Then our folks work in hand-in-hand hand with those folks. Um, our facilities guys work hand-in-hand hand with, 
with VPAM on the, on the CBP side and also with the facilities folks at the local sectors to handle any of those issues at the station or at the sector level. The same thing, our folks work with their, your vehicle folks to make sure that you've got uh, the fuel in the tanks to run those things to get fuel in the vehicles. Um, we have some uniform people that handle uniform things. We also have the special unity stuff like the chaplaincy, the peer support, the resiliency, the honor guard, all of that stuff is handled within the mission operations directory. Your firearms truck, your firearms training, your ammunition, your soft body armor, all that stuff is handled within the divisions at the uh, MROD. And it kind of goes without saying, most people don't think about the fact that there are folks that uh, that, that aren't in uniform that, that take care of that, that are these subject matter experts for, for those areas each and every day. And to give you kind of an idea of the immensity or the enormity of it. You know, the Border Patrol is a, a mobile force. Uh, we do everything on patrol. So we have a large fleet. How big is our fleet? Oh, last check, uh, a fleet just in just in marked vehicles only. We were somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of roughly five, 8,000 vehicles for the 15,000 or so that are actually doing the patrol work. And those are uh, distributed out to the various sectors. So you're talking about in the thousands of vehicles that just are marked units alone with mm -hmm. uh, that it takes to go out and do this job for the entirety of our southern border, our northern border, our coastal borders, for nearly 20,000 men and women to go out on patrol every single day. The logistics of maintaining a fleet that size when you're talking about the preventative maintenance, oil changes. Oil changes, you're talking about uh, flat tires, so within that same directorate and those divisions, we have a fleet of mechanics that also are dedicated to nothing but keeping that fleet mobile and up and running. Exactly. We have fleet mechanics that take care of some of that stuff. We also have logistics folks that are taking care of ordering all the parts necessary to do that stuff. Well, where we have locations where we have mechanics, some of the locations aren't big enough where we use purchase cards to take care. We go through um through the open market, through dealerships and things like that. But in, in the bigger sectors, we've got those logistics folks that are not just ordering parts for the, for the vehicles, they're ordering stuff that you need, uh, your, your, your masks, your, your gloves, your uh, replacement um, uh, handcuffs if you lose them, replacement batons, all that equipment and supplies and stuff that you need to do, that they need to do their everyday work is also a group of, of other folks. In fact, we have a team at the LSC in El Paso, Texas, their sole job is to go and get supplies. There's about 13 people working in a warehouse in, in El Paso, Texas. Their sole job is to go out and make sure all the sectors have all the PPE and all the supplies that they need, especially during the pandemic, to make sure that we have those those kits out there for the use of all the employees. And so that's the the fleet and just dabbles a little bit into the, uh, to the equipment that, that the men and women need out there, the facilities. The sheer number of facilities that belong to the United States Border Patrol. If you look at uh, at one sector, you know, coming from RGV, the Rio Grande Valley sector, or Laredo sector, or Holton sector, the places that I've been, each sector has multiple stations, and each station has its own facility or facilities. There's a sector headquarters. There are checkpoints. All of those have to be maintained and up to standard as well. And you have a, a specific department that does nothing but that to include new construction. That is correct. We have a facilities division. It's, uh, it, we've expanded it. We had eight folks in that division. We also have, uh, just to, to touch a little bit, I have sprinkled in 1896 employees into all of these divisions so that when we have these folks in the facilities is a perfect example. It's a division mo mainly made up of engineers because that's what, what we need to do that type of work. But the one thing about an engineer, an engineer knows everything there is to know about building a building, but they know nothing about what it, what's needed to build a building for Border Patrol use. 
So that's why we have green shirts or Border Patrol agents sprinkled in there. So when they're making these designs for a station, say, at, at Laredo Sector, we're going to build a station in Laredo, we have a green shirt to say, hey, this is a great concept, but we need more locker room facilities and we need more locker room facilities because an agent has a, 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 a gear bag and in that gear bag they've got MVGs and they've got binos and, and if they happen to be a canine then they've got additional things or if they happen to be a marine agent they've got another set of equipment that needs to go with the PFDs. They, they need these locker room spaces so that they can house that. So that's the one thing that our green shirts do is they keep people in line to make sure that we're designing a facility or getting a vehicle or, or the piece of equipment that we have has the best interest of the agent in mind. And so when you say, of course, 1896, that's a job series for a Border Patrol agent. So that's a, it's a GS-1896 and then whatever their, their pay grade is. Correct. So you, you're talking about a collaborative effort between the men and women in the uniform and the subject matter experts that actually make some of these things happen, that actually go into the construction and the procurement of uh, facilities and, mm-hmm. and keeping them, maintaining them up and running. You go to a sector or station, you have people that are also hired in addition to the mechanics that do nothing but maintain these facilities, do repairs. Correct. Correct. That's actually the, all the repairs and things that are done depending on, on the facility, whether it's a government-owned facility or whether it's a lease facility. So if it's a lease facility, um, that would go to CBP Real, which is the real estate leasing agency. And if it's a lease facility, if something needs to be done, that falls to the responsibility of the actual lesser, the person who we're actually leasing the vehicle for. If it's a GSA-owned building, and a lot, some of our vehicles are, are, or some of our facilities are GSA-owned, it is a responsibility for GSA to take care and maintain those. Like headquarters, U.S. Border Patrol headquarters at, at, at the Ronald Reagan building is a GSA facility. So if something happens with, with the facility in, in, at headquarters, GSA is responsible for it. If it's a facility that we own, then BPAM, that's the, the Border Patrol, uh, the, the, the facilities that visit at, at uh, headquarters, they come in and they find the funding to fix those. So it, it depends on how the facility is laid out. And no matter what department we're talking about or what area we're talking about, what I'm hearing is there's a lot of collaboration and work with partners and stakeholders in other agencies of the government and probably within the community as well. Absolutely. On the MROD side, there, there is there there is interaction both internal and externally, building coalitions and, and, and building those relationships within the other components of CVP as well as other government entities. Um, is, is it, it has to be done. Without it, there's no way we can get the job done. So and let's talk about the budget for a second, because this is something once you get into the government, and you realize it is a never-ending process of planning and adjusting and, and when do you actually get the funds that drop and how can you spend them and how soon do you have to spend it. There's also another segment of the professional staff that do nothing. They're dedicated to nothing but working with the budgets out there for the U.S. Border Patrol and all the sectors and stations. We actually have on, on the other side of the portfolio, the finance division, their sole responsibility is to track all of the, the money that we have come in there, there are four line of business within C- CBP, and the Border Patrol is listed in line of business one with Office of Field Operations. And those are the those things are just how everything comes together. Money comes into CBP, and we fund those things in line of business one on a, on a corporation level to do the things that we need to do. We have a group of finance folks that that's all they handle is that line of business one funds and what we need to spend and take care of the things that we need to take care of in that line of business one. On the other side, in the programming side, what those folks do is those are what's called the wrap process. What they're doing is they're doing the planning for budget f- two to five years out. 
So the facilities handle the one to, one year and two year money, depending on how it's given to us from Congress. And the programming side handles the, the three to five years out and planning how we get the money to for future projects. So that's a great point. You're talking about uh, a lot of this planning is taking place years in advance. And so it kind of it kind of makes it a little bit more understandable whenever we have uh, uh, something that's needed. And it's not as easy as just writing a check. Well, you have $100 in your bank account. Just go ahead and write the check and, and, and buy it now. No, that money may already be earmarked for something else. You may have to go through that wrap process like you talk about, and you may have to plan it for a couple years absent any exigent circumstances. That happens a lot with, it, with the budget. It does, and it actually goes a little bit deeper color of money, bucket of money. So when we get money appropriated to us from the appropriators, it comes in basically the best way, a color of money, whether it be equipment money or travel money or facilities money. And as an agency, we have to spend that money within that bucket. If we want to take, if we have money that's been allocated to us in facilities and it's been given to us by the, the appropriators, basically the Congress says that, that this is how we're going to spend the money. We have to go back to Congress and say, you gave us we have this money here. We want to spend it over here and reappropriate it, which is always a dangerous business because. And they may say no. They may take it back. <laughs> Not only do they say no, but they could say, hey, if you don't need it here, then you don't need it at all. And they take it and spend it somewhere else. So we have to also, we have to look at how we planned it and also the color or the bucket of money that it was dumped into. So just so I can, uh, I can put it into folky speak. <laughs> just so, so we may get a budget of a million dollars. This is just throwing a number out there. And they say, okay, we need something that costs 200000 On the face of it, that seems like an easy enough task. But what you're saying is of that million dollars, 500000 of it has to be spent on facilities. And 300000 of it has to be spent on equipment. And then 200000 of it can be spent for, it may not be as easy. You may not actually have the $200,000 in the right bucket that you need to be able to spend on whatever it is you want. That is correct. And if it's not in that, if the if the money isn't allocated in that bucket of money, there's some discretionary funds that the chief, the chief and the and the commissioner have. But if it's not within that bucket of money, we need to move it from one bucket to the next. Depending on the level of appropriations, it might require us to go back and ask permission. And this planning process for these budget, it it's ongoing pretty much all the time. It is on. Yeah, we right now we're in the, we're beginning the wrap process for we're in 2021. We're beginning the wrap process now for 2026 money. So five years in advance. Five days. years out. We are, we are in a planning process five years out. So when people talk about how difficult it is to start to turn that ship, the, the, the aircraft carrier, in a different direction, that's the type of thing we're talking about where it doesn't just happen like that. It, it does, takes, yeah, because you have year of execution money and then year of planning money. All right. So moving on from the budget, now you've got the, the human resource side. You have the people that do nothing but deal with <clears throat> benefits, deal with uh, – insurance, deal with uh, retirement and pensions, you have, with the hiring. Training and recruitment is a, is a big piece of what you do as well. Actually filling the positions that we need to get out there in the field. So dealing on the manpower side is actually split into two, two, two divisions. And the stuff that we were talking about earlier when we start talking about pay, um, uh, benefits, uh, retirements, uh, uh, OWCP, those type of things, all that stuff is actually handled out of the workforce management different. On the manpower side, on my side, which is recruitment and training, I handle all the recruitment and pre-employment actions for for agents. So uh, we do all the recruiting things. We go out and, and and do some some different things to go out and try to get new agents. We also have the explorers program that falls into the pre-employment and also pre-employment activities, which is all of the um, uh, there are two things that fall into that hiring boards. So we handle all the hiring boards 
for 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 professional hires, and the other one is the um, uh, medical review boards. So whenever an applicant comes in, and some people are that maybe listen that have, have gone through this, they they might have a a, a good one is um, those that have done the um, uh, the cataract or not the cataract, but the Lasix. Uh, Lasix mm-hmm. that puts you into having to go through a board. So what happens is when you go through that process and you give all the medical stuff. The hiring center, which is a another CBP entity, sends that information to a team that I have at headquarters, and we establish a board, and that board is made up of board patrol agents. I think you might have even have sat on that review board Probably. at one point. I know I've sat on it, and it's a group of, of leaders that go through and review the packet to determine whether or not that applicant can do the job as a board patrol agent. And we either say yes or no, and it goes back, and then we handle all those medical review boards that go along with it. So, Reggie, you and I have known each other for, for quite a while now. It's a, yes, sir. You're a board patrol agent. Uh, we, we graduated almost the exact same time from, from the academy. We certainly Within we, we, two we, classes. Yeah, we ran the same dirt. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take you get in this position before you started getting a grasp or a handle on this extremely complex area that not many people think about? Oh, yeah. So it's funny you ask that because this was this was a leap for me, being, uh, being working for you as a PIC up in Grand Forks when you're my A chief. I thought I had a great grasp of that. Um, and when I came to headquarters, I went up to ops and, and did all that stuff in ops. And after I left ops, I went to congressional affairs and spent some time doing some fellow stuff. When I came out of, out of congressional affairs, um, it was a, a, a great leader said, Hey, we need to diversify your resume. We need to get you to do something that's outside of your realm. So they sent me to, uh, HRM and I was assigned to the National Frontline Recruiting Command, which being an an, an uh, older guy, kind of stuck in his ways, now having to deal with the pro staff side of things was way outside of my comfort zone. Um, I came from there, I was able to come back to headquarters and picked up the associate chief over recruitment and training at that time, um, and then got the opportunity to step into the deputy level. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've been doing the deputy since December of 2018, and the the stuff that I manage on my side, all the age support, that stuff just kind of comes natural. But the finance side, I, I'm just now. If you would ask me this question a year ago, I would have struggled to be able to answer it. And, right, and that makes that sense. I did now. It's, and, it's heavy left. And talking about diversifying a person's resume or, or credentials, the the higher that we move up, it kind of behooves us to have at least a baseline understanding of of everything in the portfolio. And that kind of is, is what's serving you well whenever you move on and, and, be, and take on a command position out, out in the field again. But all of us have to kind of go through that or else we're going to have that, uh, that, that struggle or that fear because it's not something that we have grown up doing. It's not something that we've given a lot of thought to. You know, we certainly want our paycheck to be there every two weeks, and we certainly want to be able to use our medical insurance every time we, we need it. And we want to know that when we retire, we're going to get our pension. And we want to know that we're going to have vehicles to drive, vehicles that are safe and that function. We're going to want facilities to be able to do our, our work from. We don't think too much about what it takes to get them and maintain them. And that's the piece that really is is super critical. And it just drives home the point that these men and women under your purview and out of the sectors, the professional staff, how important and valuable they are to us and our mission. Well, yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, uh, stepping in and doing this stuff and, and it, it, we can all learn, right? But the subject matter experts when it comes to doing the stuff that we do. If I didn't have a pro staff that was a, a financial, uh, Bruce Lindsay is, and Eric Goldman, those guys are, are savants when it comes to, to budget side of things. I can make a decision. I want to go spend this. 
And I can do that. If I don't know the second, third, fourth order effects like they do, I'm going to get into trouble. So it's great having those folks that say a soft side facility is a perfect example. If I want to just take and spend this amount of money to build a soft side facility in a location and I don't know that, hey, I can't pull the money because it's the wrong color of money, that's what those guys do. So it, it's easy for me to say this is what I want to do, but those guys are the ones that help me make the right decisions to get the right stuff to the field. And so it, it kind of brings up two points. Uh, number one, it takes more than just a law enforcement officer to be able to make this machine that is the United States Border Patrol function. It takes a, a, a level of complexity and subject matter expertise out there that is just immense and, again, doesn't get thought about enough. It also highlights the fact that there are so many more people to this green family than just those of us that, that wear this uniform. And that's the point I want to get to is we need to make sure that we're always remembering the work that those folks do and, and remember that they are they are a part of this family and we couldn't do what we do without them. Well, yeah, without a doubt. And I, I don't, we've got guys out there doing great things. We've got board patrol agents out there that are working crazy hours doing great things and, and keeping and keeping this country safe and doing the stuff that we do. But for every four, five, six, ten Border Patrol agents out there, we've got a pro staff that's making sure that they're getting paid, that's making sure they have health benefits, that's making sure they've got a vehicle to drive, they get to making sure that the vehicle is safe to drive, they're making sure that they've got a facility that they can go and do their uh, their stuff, and that's making sure they've got a computer to do their processing on. That all of that stuff that's behind the scenes that people don't see, those folks are doing every single day. And without them, we wouldn't be able to function. And, and as, as you're listing off all of the, the functions that they perform, in my mind, I'm thinking through all these faces that I've seen over the years at the different places that I've been. And, and every one of them have a smile on their face and every one of them are, are doing the job. And, and you look at them and you come to depend on them because they're the go-to folks whenever, uh, whenever you need something like that taken care of from from the mechanics that are you, you pull up and and they're frustrated because uh, you dinged it up again or you you know you've got this thing going on again, but they get the the vehicle back up and running. Yeah, and it, it's funny you say that because I'll just say a name: Nancy Nelson. Yep. In Grand Forks, <laughs> um, and I say that because as a PAIC working few at the station, one of the problems I had was I needed more space, and I needed more space because I had all this old decrepit equipment that nobody was using. And it was Nancy Nelson and her team that helped me get through to excise that equipment to create the space so that my guys had the space to put up their their dry suits for the, the Marine patrols and had the stuff to put up there because on the northern border they had to have snowmobile stuff. They needed those lockers and that space to store that. But it was all occupied by old, decrepit NVGs that nobody was using. And without Nancy Nelson, I couldn't have made that space available for the agents at the station. Hey, and I bet you every single one of us uh, probably have – that person or those people in our mind when we start talking about our professional sta staff that, uh, that, that do those jobs probably comes to mind. Mm -hmm. and, and you think to yourself, yeah, I haven't said thank you enough. You know, I haven't go out there and, 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 and tell them just how valuable they are to the border security mission. They have a, a very big part in keeping this country safe as well. They don't get all the accolades. They don't get the, uh, the, the, the limelight or the spotlight, but they, are just as happy whenever we succeed. They are just as proud when we succeed. And we should take a second and say thank you. We should. The, 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 we don't accomplish the mission without them. That with all the work that's being done behind them, if, if, 
if an a- if agents are out there and have aliens in their processing and they need they need to purchase food that's not on a contract at a smaller station it's somebody with a purchase card that goes and takes care of that for them it, it, the work does not get done without them translation services is a perfect example without the folks in logistics doing the work that they did to get translation services up we can't pro- we can't process in in languages we don't speak without it we're dead in the water we're holding people for days on a time until we can get somebody to translate for them. And that's a pro staff person with a purchase card that sets up that contract that's taking care of it. And one, uh, one of the other, I guess, for us would be a, uh, a fun aspect of your job and the things that you have purview over would be the specialty programs. You've got uh, the Honor Guard, the uh, Explorer program, the, uh, am I right? The, uh, uh, the, the specialty programs on my side that fall, I, 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 I've got chaplaincy, Peer support, resiliency, honor guard. Within honor guard is pipes and drums. Um, some of the other cool stuff, firearms use of force. So I have all the body armor. So the Glocks, my team was was instrumental with the LEC in developing, uh, getting the Glock tested and getting the Glock selected. Uh, you should see some, uh, I think you've already shot the new course of fire. We're trying to get the new course of I fire sure out there yep. to get some feedback on how that's done. What that. did you think of that? Did you like that course of fire? You know what? You're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm biased. Um, and I actually like the new course of fire and I'll get into that. Uh, I can go into now or I can finish with the other. Go stuff. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So we'll go into the, the, all that other stuff with the firearms use of force. The new course of fire. Well, what I want people to understand about in, in 1997, 96, when we came in, everybody was carrying wheel guts. Um, they went in and we we're going to transition from wheel to semi-automatic. The 72 round course of fire that we've been shooting since you and I came in in 1997 and everybody else is out there been shooting was a course of fire that was not designed for anything other than the 92 DD Beretta. And it was a course of fire that was designed to teach the skill sets in transitioning from shooting a revolver to a semi-automatic weapon. All the skill sets, the magazine changes, everything that was done was that was specific to the Beretta and the Beretta only. In the mid-2000s, we went from away from the red and went to the P2000. We didn't change our course of fire. It was still a course of fire that was developed for eight skill sets in transitioning from a revolver to a semi-automatic. The new course of fire is 50 rounds. And in this 50-round course of fire, we are teaching 13 skill sets. And these are 13 skill sets that have been proven to be the skill sets needed are things that law enforcement officers are likely to encounter a deadly force encounter. So you're going to shoot, yes, you're going to shoot 50 rounds or 22 rounds or less because you're only shooting 50 rounds, but you're going to get 13 skill sets in, in comparison to nine. More importantly, we're not shooting less rounds. We're actually shooting more rounds of the qualification because we've added in 150 rounds of advanced firearms training exercises. So when you go to qualify, you're not just going to shoot 72 rounds and leave and be done. You're going to shoot 200 rounds, 50 of which are going to be the new course of fire. And it's a new course of fire that regardless of whether we change weapons or not, if we go to another weapon, this course of fire is, is addressed to address those skill sets that are likely to encounter a deadly force encounter, thus making you more prepared for a deadly force encounter, more importantly, making you more prepared to speak to that if you ever get called to testify on the stuff that we're teaching you. So I'll tell you just from my, my personal opinion is I liked it. I thought it was, it, it was good. I felt like I was exercising more skills in that course of fire than I did in the one before. It didn't feel like I was shooting less than the 72 round course of fire. So I'm a fan of it. I'm, I'm a fan of our new uh, weapons platform as well. Mm-hmm. I like to see uh, 
I like to see us evolve and progress and, and make sure we have the, the latest and greatest out there for, for the agents. I liked it, and I, I'm curious to see where it goes from here. But we're finally starting to get on board with everybody getting uh, the Glock, whichever one they choose, and, and, uh, and you know, with the, I guess, advances in technology, the rounds now, and uh, we're able to carry more, yeah. which is a, I've got I've got a question for you, and then we'll go back to the Glock. What do you think about the concept of starting at 25 and moving closer? So it was different. It yeah. was very different. And, and I'll tell you, so and one I'll of the things. I'll tell thing, you why we did that when you, when you speak. Well, one of the things for us, so when we used to do it in reverse and start off at the one and a half, the further back you go, there's almost a mind game that you get played that uh, it, it's harder and harder to aim in. Whereas if you start out at the most difficult and you're advancing in on the target is basically, I think, what the, what the thought process is. It seems to become easier and easier and easier to, to be on target. But I agreed with the concept behind it. And at the end of the day, we ought to be ready to, to shoot in any conditions mm-hmm. and whatever gets thrown at us. And so, yeah, it's a change, but so does our environment. Yeah, we wanted to get into the concept that if you're in a deadly force encounter, actually have to use your weapon. And then you, we wanted to be comfortable with advancing, number one. So you start out farther from a safe distance and then start in. But more importantly, like you had said, that mind game is actually fatigue. So would you rather be fresher shooting at 25 yeah, or at one sense. and a half? So we pushed it out to shoot fresh at 25, where when you get closer at one and a half, when that fatigue, that mental fatigue sets in, it's easier for you to maintain that sight picture because you were shooting Ben Elbow, right? And you're within one and a half yards. It's easier to, to get a shot on target at that range when you're fatigued than it is at 25 yards. It's just interesting to hear, I mean, again, how much thought in the process that goes into making these decisions. Uh, I think sometimes we don't think about that. We think, oh, you know, where did this come from? It's just out of the blue. It made it easier on somebody to go this way than that way. But when you hear the rationale and the thought process behind it, even if you don't agree with it, you can at least get behind it and say, mm-hmm. okay, well, they were driving towards a direction. They had some goal in mind. Right. And and now I want to talk about the Glock, right? But, because there, there's, well, what you go with, Glock 19 or Glock 47? 47. And everybody, and when I, I say Glock 47, we probably have similar reasons. Most people think, well, I'm going to go Glock 19 because it's a smaller gun. You'd be wrong. It's not a smaller gun. The frame on the Glock 19 is identical to the frame on the Glock 47. It is the same distance around. So if you think you're getting a 19 because you've got smaller hands, you'd be wrong. It's the same distance around. The only difference is, is the slide. And if you're a poor shooter, you should be thinking Glock 47. And the reason why is that extra half an inch gives you a better sight picture sight alignment. And at, at 25 yards, Two inches, a half an inch will bring you an inch and a half. Interesting. So, yeah, because it's, it, it's it's a longer. Think about rifle, right? Historically, you tend to shoot better with a rifle because of that long sight picture from the rear sight to the front sight. Because you've got it's easier to line up and get the longer it is, the easier it is to line it up compared to five and a half or five. So oh. if you're if you're not a great shooter, I would suggest forty seven. Oh, that's good advice. I would suggest 47 because you're going to have an extra half an inch to give you a lighter sight picture. More importantly, 19-round magazine options are out there. More rounds. The the 47 is was specifically made for the United States. So Board you're Board. proving the point that uh, that you are an agent and not somebody that stays behind a desk all day. At least I, that's where you came from. I get where I came from. I'm a certified <laughs> firearm instructor. I mean, I've done that whole gamut. I, I, I was one of the the um, the plank owners, so to speak, in, in the baton uh, OC be a baton training. And I'm sure you spent time in, in McAllen. I think that I'm legendary when it comes to <laughs> training 
when it comes to firearms, our uh, CBP, CSB and, and OC training in McAllen back in the day. So wow. I, I, I don't come for this just because people are telling me it. I've lived it. I've experienced it. I helped uh, go through the process of selecting the Glock. So there's there's a lot of things out there that, that go with it. So And while we're on the topic, so other interesting points that uh, that are under your purview, the, uh, the honor guard, the pipes and drums, you also are a member of those. I, I'm also a member of the Honor Guard. I was also, I'm also a member of the Pipe and Drums. I was a commander of that team for a couple of years. Um, that, that's probably one of the highlights of my career because not many people can say, you know, yeah, I'm a board choice, but I also play on the pipes, the pipes and drums. It was, uh, it's, it was an absolute wonderful thing. So that's and that's something that uh, is very unique. It, it it identifies us when you see the Border Patrol pipes and drums out there, and it's uh, and and for the reasons that we use them, it just it, it really makes it special. A lot of people probably have some interest in that, or at least how it came to be. Let's talk about that a little bit. How did we get Border Patrol bagpipes and drums, and what does all of it mean? When you, you have the kilt, I know those kilts are special ordered. I know mm-hmm. we have the, uh, they're numbered. I know that uh, the, the bagpipes, they only have a certain amount of them uh, for the United States Border Patrol. Tell us about that. So the, so the pipe and drum team is actually, we've we, we put a number of 35 people. So our, our it's a national team. It's managed at out of my office at, at headquarters. Um, and and you have to go through honor guard training to be a member of the pipe and drums training. Doesn't mean that, that you have to be an honor guard member first, but you have to complete and co- graduate the honor guard training to be a, to be a member of the pipe and drum team. I, I wish I could take credit for it, but there are, there are great people out there and I'll just throw out a couple of names, Brad Kirkpatrick, um, Cliff Gill, James Serrell. Uh, those guys were instrumental in actually setting up Pipes and drums. At, at the time, back in the, uh, when we first started doing honor guard stuff back in the late 90s, um, it was sort of ad hoc. Each sector kind of had their own thing. And we had these guys with Highland, by, with bagpipe background that say, hey, law enforcement, historically bagpipes is, is long law enforcement. Goes back to the to the turn of the century when folks from Scotland would come over. The only jobs they could get were cops because they were considered low-paying jobs, so that's where those traditions and things come in. So they had that background and said, hey, you know, we're law enforcement agents, we should have pipes and drums. And I think the first team actually started in Laredo, Texas. Maybe Del Rio. It was either Brad Kirkpatrick and James Serrell in, in, in Del Rio, Texas, or Cliff Gill and some other folks in Laredo. It, I think is where it started. Uh, and it was like the Honor Guard thing. It was kind of like uh, the, the SOD stuff. Where we had the SRT teams and the mm-hmm. SOG, it was one of those things where we're sort of ad hoc. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Uniforms were kind of modge podge and different. We and in McAllen when I was on the team, we had gold ascots, and it was just I think Laredo they had white ascots. It was just this sort of so we needed to find a way to standardize, kind of like they did with the SRT teams. So that's what we did. They brought the team together and they standardized and said, you know what, we're just going to have one team nationally because that would be the best way they'd be spread out. And they deploy from there. So it, it started out that way, um, and probably in the in the early two thousands. I got on the team in two thousand nine while I was actually in Grand Forks, um, and I did it because Chief Schroeder at the time said we need a bagpiper. Who wants to do it? And myself and Kevin Wiley and Alan Terry said well, we'll do it. <laughs> so you didn't play the bagpipes. I did before. not play the bagpipes. How did you learn? I actually, uh, between the team giving me some, some mentoring, I actually took private lessons. I drove the Thunder Bay once a week. So you um, found somebody that played and they I found somebody who played and took lessons. And how long did it take you before you felt like uh, you had a handle on it? Ah, uh, you know, I, 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 it didn't take me long at all. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, before I could, 
before I could actually play anything other than scale and make it sound horrible, it probably took me a solid eight, nine months of lessons. And practice. And I'm practice, sure you had to practice right. a lot. Because the, the, you start off with a practice chanter, and once you step into the pipes, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on with it. Before I could say that I was a really, really good piper, we had two levels. We had an intermediate level certification where you could do local events, and I did a lot in Grand Forks. Um, and then we have the national level. So I started in 2009, and that was after a good solid 18 months of tutoring before I could get to that that sector level, that intermediate level. But then it was probably about another 18 months before I could step up into the national level. Um, it, 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 it still, I'm still, I still struggle in some tunes now. Sounds like you'd have to have an awful understanding spouse. Um, well, that yeah, is a good thing when you're, when you're yeah. <laughs> My wife, uh, she, she, uh, she loves it now, but in the in the beginning, it was pretty rough. Not so much. It was pretty rough. And the uh, it goes without saying, the pipes and drums, the uh, Border Patrol Honor Guard, has received national accolades, won awards, absolutely, and represents us well every single year at the at the uh, uh, police games and uh, and the police week up in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, Washington D.C. You know our our Honor Guard folks, and even here at the academy, I'm not going to leave the the Honor Guard folks at the academy. When we start talking about those teams, we've got them in just about every sector, if not every sector. And those teams that actually have the ability to compete in police week, the dedication that those guys put into to go and perform and actually compete at that level is is amazing. We've had amazing teams between El Paso and El Centro and Tucson. I think even El Centro's jumped in there a couple of times. Those guys have been the front runners. They 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 really, really do a good job. And to put together a team, first and foremost, in the in the environment that we have is one thing, right? To actually put together a team to actually get the practice in in the in the patrol environment around is, is another thing. So the fact that those guys can put together the the series of drills that they do and do it to a level where they win year in and year out because I, I think it's been boy I wish we had Frank in here. Frank could could tell me right. I think we've won eight out of the last ten years. And you can search on YouTube. You can see videos Absolutely. all over of, of the performances yeah. and, and the caliber that they, that they're at. So if a person wants to get into Honor Guard or Pipes and Drums, what do they need to do? Uh, the best way is in their local sector is to just reach out and, and look for those. Uh, they, they do those the solicitations at the sector level. Uh, on the Pipes and Drums, we solicit Pipes and Drums on the national level every year. So they just need to look for that solicitation. Usually comes from me um, asking for people to, uh, to, to come on the board of, to Pipes and Drums. Pipes and Drums is a little bit different because you, you got to have a musical background. If you don't have a musical background, you got to have a willing willingness to dedicate the time to learn because you just can't learn the notes. You actually have to learn how to read sheet music. And if you don't learn how to read sheet music, you're going to struggle and struggle and struggle. And this is something, again, that these men and women, you, do in addition to your duties as a Border Patrol agent. The, the, the Honor Guard and the Pipes and Drums is a collateral duty. So they above and beyond a lot of extracurricular time, a lot of your own time that you're dedicating to practicing and taking lessons and everything. The, uh, one of the really, really special things that the honor guard and the pipes and drums do for us doesn't deal with the, with the competitions and the accolades. It's in our lowest moments where they really send a strong message. When you're talking about one of our fallen and honoring our fallen. And I can tell you, there's no time when those teams are appreciated more than when we're paying tribute or honoring somebody that's given their lives in the line of duty. Not only that, but I can tell you uh, with the, the folks that I know, whether on the pipes and drums, on the honor guard, 
they would pass up the opportunity to compete to do a line of duty death funeral. I've done several of them myself, both on the honor guard side and on the pipe and drum side. Um, when we start talking about honor and fallen, that, that is the, that is, we can't, that is the biggest thing we can do. Uh, every time you and I put on this uniform, we're representing not just that fallen agent, but that fallen agent's wife, spouse, children. And that's the one thing we need to remember. And that's one thing that every single one of those honor guard guys remember is that I'm just not representing the Border Patrol. I'm representing that fallen agent and that fallen agent's mother, father, daughter, son, wife. So everything I do doesn't just affect me. It affects every single one of them. So let's talk about the honors that are given to somebody by the honor guard uh, in a line of duty death especially because we it, it kind of speaks to the lengths that these men and women go to to pay that tribute. So if somebody dies in the line of duty, you have a silent watch. We have a silent watch, yes. And tell us what that is. Silent watch is basically it's, it's a casket watch. is where we post two agents on the side of the casket, and they're at the side of that casket from the time that that agent, they're, they're beside that agent from the time that he dies until the time that he's interned. In full dress uniform. Full dress uniform, standing at parade rest. Watching over him. Watching over standing him. Standing right him. there next to him. It could be a one-hour shift. It could be a 15-minute shift. It could be an eight-hour shift. And these folks, these guys stand there because they're there for that age and that age's family to stand watch until he's endured. And then during the actual ceremony, we're talking about uh, the things that people know about, the flag drape, draped uh, uh, coffin, the 21-gun salute. Uh, this is the rifle team will do that as well the actual carrying of the casket a lot, all the ceremonies that go into that, the, the horseless uh, or the, the riderless horse, uh, that's, that's the, the playing of taps, the amazing grace by the, uh, by the bagpipes. All of this must be executed in a flawless fashion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there's also Lone Piper, right? So as the, as wherever the casket goes, we try to put a piper out in front. So guiding the casket wherever it goes. We call that the Lone Piper. Or it's, usually it's a team. They, they, nobody likes to be on the pipe and drum. Those guys don't like to be soloed out. They like the bigger sound. Of, they want the whole band to be there. They all want that honor. So wherever the casket goes, where he's moving from um, from the funeral home to the barrel site, you know, that's why you'll see those guys bringing in, whether it's a caisson or whatever, there's that side of it. You've got the 21-gun uh, salute team that does the 21-gun the salute. We have our uh, flag-folding team. Usually we try to do six people for line of duty death, it's a better fold. We can do this. Some of those guys out there can do it too, but we want six people out there. We've got uh, um, the commander of agents um, and all that stuff that goes into, uh, that's why you also hear at the very end, once it's all done, you hear that lone piper walking off and doing that sound that goes off. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty intense. The amount of rehearsal that goes into it leading up, you don't just show up at the ceremony and, and execute, you're, you're training and rehearsing it days in advance not only well and that's the other thing too right because again remember our pipe and drum team when it, if, if it's a, an agent that dies in in laredo laredo has a pretty substantial team but if it's an agent that dies in grand forks grand forks has a substantial team but they're spread out over 800 miles so it's not like they can get together and practice like they can in laredo when they're all the stations are within a 30 mile range or a 40 mile range uh, pipes and drums is the same. Those guys are spread out, so they have to. They practice through Zoom, through Skype, through all that type of stuff. But the level that they are at for them to show up 
and within a day of practice be fine-tuned, that's the level of expertise that those guys are at. And only because it's people that have a passion for it and they take it serious. Mm-hmm. It's something that, that they are driven to excel at. You have to be. If, if you're not committed to learning the techniques, whether it's pipe and drums or honor guard, if you're not willing to learn the techniques of, of holding the rifle and doing that type of stuff, don't bother. It takes a level of commitment because that commitment's going to come at the worst time. It's absolutely going to come at the worst time. And I'll, I'll just tell a, a story about me. I don't know if you remember. Um, I was actually doing training in San Antonio, and we had that big rain in Grand Rain. My house flooded. And I come back, and we had a line of duty death. I had to tell my wife, babe, you've got to deal with a flooded house. I've got to go to, to Botano to do a line of duty death. And I'm sure she understood. Well, let's go with that. Let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the, the – they come at good times. They come at bad times. You just have to be ready to step up and go and do it. And you have to be ready to perform when you get there. Because every mistake you make, that wife, that husband, that child, that mother, that father, they hear it. It's a lot of pressure. That's what they hear. So, Yeah, I, I've been in awe of all of you guys. Uh, I've seen you play in happy times. I've seen you play in low, uh, lowest of lows. You know, you, Frank, Myrna, Joyce, the, the list goes on and on and on of folks that over the years. And I just, you never know that about people that you work with until you see and it just it adds a level of depth to to how you hold that person, and uh, and, it, and it's impressive. And and I thank you for for what you do, and, and and everybody that gets on those teams. It's what it does for us, for our soul. When something like that happens, you can't measure, you can't put it into words. And and I, I just I got to think that uh, after you go through something like that, it's got to be draining. Are you exhausted when it's over? What? It depends, right? For me, it depends on where I'm at. Um, the toughest part for me when I'm playing is is not seeing the casket, right? So as long as I don't have view of the casket, I can usually I can usually do what I need to do. But when I see casket, that's when it gets rough. And I uh, I tell another story. It was actually uh, um, Barry Peterson mm-hmm. in our International Falls. Yeah. Um, his son died in uh, um, drowned in a in the pool. And I actually went out on my own time and played for him. And I was great until I saw that child-side casket yeah. come out. So it's not related to Border Patrol, but that's that's really what what I, I you know I have to remember that that I'm there for the family. And if whatever mistake I make, they're going to hear. It. I don't want them to hear a mistake from me. So I yeah, as long as I don't, I'm not in view of the casket, or as long as I can play and not be in view of the casket, because I'll need to see the casket when I need to do things. That that's what it is for me. There's some other folks out there that they're just they're just better at keeping their emotions in than I am. So, um. well, and so for anybody that's interested, and we talked about the the process. You, you have to be an agent. You have to be an agent off of probationary you status. Have, you have to be an agent off of probationary status. You have to have the, the you have to have the uh, approval from your chain of command. You write a memo. Go to your and then they'll go through an interview process and, and things like that. And uh, the training simple. itself for uh, talk about honor guard for a second. We've touched lightly on it. We, we could spend hours talking about each one of these components and not still not do them justice. How long is the training for the initial honor guard? Course? Two, two weeks. Two weeks. What are the things that they go over? Uh, they're going to go through. You're going to go through drill and dress. You're going to go through. You're going to have dress inspections. You're going to have inspections every single day. Um, you're going to learn how to drill. You're going to learn how to do. Uh, rifle movements you're going to learn how to do 
the the right position and holding parade, parade rest because it's not just standing at parade rest it's standing at parade rest in the identical way that your partner is on the other side of the casket or and it's not just holding the rifle it's holding the rifle identical to the other six people in line with you it's not just standing at the casket it's knowing all right if i'm position one i have to do this or if i'm position three i have to do this and when and going into those right positions so there's a lot of there's a lot of dress deportment and drill in, in it. So it's an amazing thing to talk about and to learn. I learn something new every time I talk to one of you guys. It's something I, you know, I never did, but I've always stood in awe of everybody that, that, that did. And so obviously I know we're always looking for folks that, uh, that, that want to step up and, and be members of these teams. So if you're listening and it's something that, uh, that, that calls to you, you know, please, uh, seek it out and, and represent, you know, the U S border patrol in a way that very few very few people out there do and do so well. And if you want to check out some of the work that uh, that our Honor Guard and Pipes and Drums do, go to YouTube, and all you have to do is type in Border Patrol Pipes and Drums or Border Patrol Honor Guard, and the the images speak for themselves. It's absolutely amazing. The same thing goes with the uh, the professional staff. You know, the, these these men and women that many of them are from uh, from the retired military or, or law enforcement backgrounds, and they're coming in to continue their service. Mm-hmm. And that's the, they, they have a subject matter expertise based on years and years and years of experience, and they continue to serve in that capacity as well. Yeah, we have pro staff that are peer support, chaplains, resiliency folks. So those folks, that's collateral duty as well, to be a chaplain and, and do that peer support. We have training for that. We have both uniform, a Border Patrol agents, and pro staff. So those folks, they serve as well in that same fashion. It's the same. It's, I would say the same thing. If, if your heart pulls to be a chaplain, Research out, see when they're looking for chaplains. If your heart pulls to to be there to help agents through or employees through bad times, whatever they are, whether it be floods, because our peer support teams, those guys are dealing with with the floods in Louisiana, the floods in Florida, the floods in in Puerto Rico. Whether it's uh, death in the family, that's what those those folks do. So if that if that's something that pulls at your heart, you need to jump in and and provide a service because we. We need them. And it's a good example of how the Border Patrol takes care of its own its own family and because we have our own that step up and do these collateral duties, these jobs, in addition to their day jobs. They don a cape of a peer support or a chaplain, and they uh, they get out there in times of need above and beyond the call of duty. It also reemphasizes something I say all the time. If you get bored in the United States Border Patrol, you're simply not trying because there's something out there for everybody, and your portfolio just underscores that, whether it's chaplain, peer support, recruiter, honor guard, pipe and drums, professional staff, and any of the wide array of areas in that professional staff. Hey, good Lord. We haven't even touched on laptops, <laughs> iPhones, NVGs, FLIR, uh, binos, Leathermans, all that type of stuff. Circuits, I handle all the circuits. I mean, there's so much stuff out there that goes along with. I mean, without, without circuits, which is the T1 lines, without mm-hmm. that, we're not doing the show without a T1 line into this facility. So, Rich, you're you're a, uh, a retired Navy man, a retired chief. Yes, sir. Uh, chief from the Navy, <laughs> and you have been in the Border Patrol going on 25 years. I know that because, again, yeah. two classes apart. The uh, What's been your highlight? What's been the best thing that you look back on in, in all of that? Uh, you know, I, I would say it, the Marine Patrols, back, back doing – uh, the Marine stuff on, on the Rio back in McAllen. Um, it, it, it was, we, we started that unit up and, and, uh, I spent the better part of, of three years of my six years in McAllen running bass boats up and down the river. If I wasn't running bass boats, I was doing training. 
Um, and, and I just enjoyed that so much, whether it was 20 degrees at night in, in January or 110 degrees in July. Um, the, the work was just nonstop. It was always great stuff up there. There was a lot of chance there was, we interdicted uh, smuggling traffic, whether it was narcotics or alien traffic, Europa, chicken, name, take your pick. It was just a, it was just a great time. I just look back at all the stuff that, that I had that, that, that was the best time because it was really, really, it was a great unit to work on and it was always something new every single day. And you got in on the uh, on the boats up in the uh, Grand Forks sector that as well. Also, yeah, yeah. So yeah. being trained was actually it was actually easy to go up there and different type of patrol. Right, went from river to Great Lake, a mm-hmm. um, little bit different. Uh, you know, I mean, Lake Superior is a big lake during during the winter. You know, fighting, a little bit of snow, a little bit of snow. But you know, <laughs> it's one thing being on the Re- on the Rio Grande River dealing with with jet ski wakes, and it's another thing being on Lake Superior and dealing with four and three and four foot swells. So, yeah. yeah. So, you get the men and women, many of whom are probably going through the uh, the academy right now, or going to be in in short order. Any message for them about uh, what to expect or how to approach this job? You know, coming from a police department to this job was really not what I expected, and I, and I actually like telling the story because I was a Denver cop for seven years before I came here, um, and I was just looking for I wanted to get into federal law enforcement. Um, and the, the door sort of opened for me and, you know, back then it was, you never know, it was going to be six months or 18 months. You never knew how long it was it take to get hired. I, I, I got this job, um, with the expectation I was only going to be here for three to five years. Cause I had my sights fully set on pick your three letter acronym, pick it. Cause being from Denver, Colorado, that was my goal was to get back to Denver, Colorado doing federal work. Um, it, so that's what I was prepared was just to come in and do what I needed to do. But once I, I, I got to the Border Patrol Academy and I started realizing the amount of training that I was going to, and I went through at 26. It was, I wish I'd have went through at 19. It would have been a little bit easier at 19 than it was at 26 because I bounced boot camp to this. Um, and then I started realizing why. Well, I mean, I had been to a police academy at, at 21 and doing this, the Border Patrol Academy was was so much harder. Was it? It was just so much harder. Just uh, physically, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't just physically tough. It was mentally tough. Um, and this is coming from a guy that that took two and a half years of Spanish in college and three years of Spanish. In I high was going to ask about that. So you had some base knowledge of Spanish. I, yeah, I had five years of formal training yeah. in Spanish. Five weeks, we had co- covered everything I learned <laughs> at both the. Uh, 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 high school level and at a at a college level, with just when we started getting into the subjective and all that type of stuff, and I was a I was a group two guy, so you know I don't know if they're still grouped in groups one, but back then we were groups one through six, and you didn't want to be an an Anglo in group six because you were going to struggle. I was an Anglo in group two. So I was with Nativas. I don't know where you sat, but oh, I was in Group Four. I'm an Okie from Muskogee. Yeah, so, so I, I was I was work. a Group Two guy. They lumped <laughs> me in Group. I was actually hoping for Group Three, yeah. but they lumped me in the Group Two. So, but in five weeks we had covered. So for me, the struggle was the Spanish side. Even though I could conjugate and and remember the verbs, that was the and it wasn't just the conjugation and the classroom. It was the practical exercises, putting it into to actual use because the police in the police department you have to worry about stop it's a completely different realm when you start dealing on the side so 
that would be the thing. Be prepared to be challenged. If, if you're physically fit, and I was in pretty good shape back then, um, I wasn't prepared for the mental strain that was going to, I thought I was going to, when it was going to breeze right through and, and I didn't, I actually had to, had to buckle down. I had to study and rely on your classmates. I had to rely on my classmates. And that was a good thing, right? Uh, being the police and, and, and things like that, the law came a little bit easier to me. Um, luckily enough, my, my roommate at the time was a native speaker and where he struggled in law, I could help him with law and where I needed help on the Spanish side, he could help me on the Spanish side. It's an all too common story you hear very often. Number one, that somebody comes in and looks at the Border Patrol as a stepping stone and then finds home and, and never leaves. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's happened to so many people throughout the years. The other is when you come to an academy like this, especially the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, you are going to find things that challenge you. Everybody will have that test or tests that uh, that, that push your ability to adapt and be resilient. You have to rely on your classmates. You have to buckle down and push through and be able to work hard and persevere. Mm-hmm. That's why not everybody makes it. Yeah, exactly. And it, it goes beyond that, right? Because once you graduate the academy is only step one. Step two is getting to the field and getting through. At that time, it was our, it was the six and a half and the 10, but now it's it, it's the FTO status. And, and without Norberto Gonzalez and Hector Zamora, you know, I'm telling you, Rich Fortunato would have struggled on the Spanish side in the field. So you gotta, you gotta make sure that these guys that you meet in the academy, they're gonna be there side by side when you're in the field and you're trying. Now you're trying to apply everything and learn center list and learn locations and and all that type of stuff because they're just gonna get thrown at you again. So it's those relationships that you're gonna build in the academy are gonna be important when you get to the field because when you get to the field, it's gonna be your classmates that are gonna help you to get through it. Everything will pass. Everything, you're going to get challenges, but this too shall pass. And I look at it now, 25 years. I mean, I look back at the day and, and I say, oh, here I'm at my McAllen station and I'd be happy to be a um, GS seven, right? Mm. I'd be happy to be a GS 12 supervisor, be a supervisor. And now, you know, you look where we're at and you're like, wow. Never saw it coming. Never saw it coming. Never, never. If you ask me, in 1998, if I thought I was going to be the deputy director chief of, of MROD, I was, I'm what's be, that? What's that? I'm, I'm going to be, I'm hoping to be a GS 11 line agent running boats on, on our, on the Rio. <laughs> so you still keep in touch with the classmates? I do with, I do with some of them, uh, you know, anniversary year comes around. Um, it, it's really just the, my class, uh, we started out, um, common story. We started out about 48, Graduated about 32. Uh, my class was actually split between McAllen sector and Laredo sector. So uh, you probably remember uh, Durkee and those kind of guys. Those are all my classmates in, in Laredo. So it, it was really a smaller group. Uh, you know, Barry Songer's retired now. Wade Strum's still down in. Uh, and, of course, McAllen sector is now the Rio Grande Valley sector. Rio Grande sector. Valley sector. Changed I apologize. The name. Yeah, no. changed the name. Nope. So, Do you remember your class chant? Oh, my, our motto? Yep. On the prowl, on the trail, 327 will not fail. I'm telling you, everybody <laughs> remembers it. 25 years, I bet you still have it, and you, you still wake up dreaming about it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I Rich, still remember my PT instructors. Yeah, and, yeah. and they left a lasting impression on you, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, they sure did. As they always They're do. They're both right? retired, Tom Thauer and, and John Stebline, two yeah. beasts of men. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on here with us and, and sharing your stories today. Thank you. It was a great opportunity. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe out there and honor first.